when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Perkins Miller, the CEO of Fandom which runs thousands of wikis for everything from Disney to The Matrix to Taylor Swift to Grand Theft Auto. Fandom also runs several publications like TV Guide, Metacritic, and GameSpot. It's a big, complicated media company in a big, complicated time for media companies. Fandom has an interesting history. It started as a company called Wikia, the commercialized sister company to Wikipedia. If Wikipedia is the noble, community-supported encyclopedia, then fandom is the explicitly profit-driven entertainment platform. And that means a lot of things that often collide with how people think about wikis. For example, Perkins talks about fandom like you would talk about any other big ad-supported media company with tons of user-generated content. Millions of people contribute millions of pieces of content to the platform, and fandom surrounds all that content with ads, and then uses all that data to generate insights about how fans think about their favorite games, TV shows, and movies. And while you might enjoy the content and communities on fandom's thousands of sites, looking up Baldur's Gate quest walkthroughs or ridiculous Star Wars character names, the commercialization of all of it means that people have a lot of complaints about the user experience, particularly the sheer number of ads. So I asked Perkins about all those ads covering every fandom wiki. How much is too much and how much does fandom need to stay afloat? And does he think about it differently on mobile, where small screen real estate is at a premium? We also talked about what it means to host user-generated content here in 2023. If you're a Decoder listener, you know that one of our big ideas is that the product of a social network is fundamentally content moderation. It's what a social network makes. So what's fandom's role and responsibility when it comes to managing toxicity and inclusion on its platform? Particularly for some fandoms, like Harry Potter, that appear to have outgrown their creators. I'm also gearing up to host the Code Conference in September, and I've been thinking a lot about AI, search, and the web. Every user platform is getting flooded with AI content now, most of it garbage, and search itself is changing as Google keeps more and more traffic for itself by just answering questions with AI. What does that mean for a wiki platform, especially a commercial wiki platform that is full of guides about how to beat Zelda shrines? Perkins has a pretty optimistic view here, which I found refreshing, but I definitely pushed him on it. 
We also talked about the general state of media, especially games media, which is pretty rocky right now. Like so many media companies, Fandom recently had layoffs, and I wanted to know if Perkins sees a rebound coming. And then he has even weirder problems than traditional media companies. Entire communities and wikis, like the Legend of Zelda community, have left Fandom recently. That's a very different kind of labor issue, and I was curious to know how Perkins thinks about managing it. There's a lot in this one. Fandom is part of the internet's fabric in a lot of ways. Okay, Perkins Miller, CEO of Fandom. Here we go. Perkins Miller, you are the CEO of Fandom. Welcome to Decoder. Great to be here. I am really excited to talk to you. I think there's something really big happening on the internet with our platforms, with communities. Fandom is right at the heart of it. It's a company that's been around for a long time, and it seems like it's going through a lot of changes of its own. So there's a lot to talk about, but I just want to start at the very beginning for people who are coming into this. They've probably encountered a fandom site in the past, but maybe not fandom itself. The company's been around since 2004. It started as kind of the sister to Wikipedia in a more profit-driven way. Explain to people what fandom is. Fandom started at its core with Jimmy Wales, who's the founder of Wikipedia, I'm having this moment and thinking, you know what, there's probably more that I can do, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> in creating the world's greatest encyclopedia to, you know, do more for people to celebrate their nerddom and fandom, frankly. And so he spun out on the same Wikimedia platform, first this idea of like wiki cities, and he thought that communities would come together and coalesce sort of on a geographic basis. But what happened over time and over the years is that people started to merge and celebrate these imagined worlds. You had these people coming around, you know, Star Trek and Lord of the Rings and World of Warcraft and every anime series you can imagine and started to sort of document and celebrate the, the lore. And it kind of became the home of this, the kind of canon of these imagined fantasy worlds across gaming and movies and TV. And we renamed it Fandom probably about seven years ago. Uh, I joined about four and a half years ago We've sort of been focused on this idea that these wikis or these blogs, which of which are 200,000 plus of them, and they reach over 300 million people a month, are something that we can build on in order to try to celebrate people's passions for these imagined worlds. And so we have been you know, growing fandom, these core wikis, but we've also been acquiring businesses. We acquired a business called Fanatical which is the leading sort of online commerce platform if you want to buy an online video game. We bought a series of businesses that are for people who are trying to navigate the world of entertainment. So we own Metacritic and TV Guide and GameSpot and Giant Bomb. These are platforms that allow people to you know, navigate their way into what to watch, where to watch, how to play. We reached now probably 350 million visitors a month across all these platforms around the world. And, you know, the mission is pretty straightforward. I mean, we believe that, you know, fans have this sense of identity. Personally, I'm a Star Trek nerd. So <laughs> I like, and I read silly fantasy books and I'm not reading all my silly business books. You know, there's a part of my identity that's grounded in sci-fi. And so I, you know, love a place where I can kind of go down the rabbit hole uh, and discover what I want to watch next and what game I want to play next. And so that's been the, over the last uh, sort of almost 20 years, the evolution of fandom as this platform. And, you know, people do find their way into this, uh, again, this matrix um, as they're trying to kind of figure out what to watch or what to play. 
So I think about that a lot, right? You you watch something. Let's use Game of Thrones as an example. I think this was like peak wiki as you're watching television in American culture, at least. You're watching something. It's complicated. There's a lot of lore. You need to figure out what's going on. You're going to fall down the rabbit hole of some wiki or the other. That's going to explain everything to you. At its core, that is a user-generated content platform, right? You have people who are contributing for free. You have some moderators. You have some editors, perhaps. And you have an underlying platform that is a technology product to enable all this to happen. You know, if you squint, it looks more like a YouTube or Instagram or anything. What are the differences and what are the similarities as you think about, okay, I run a giant user-generated content platform. It's not Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia is constantly asking people to donate for money. It's free. It has a volunteer ethos. You're running something at scale for profit. You've got a big private equity investor and you've got the same challenges as the other big for-profit user-generated platforms. What are the similarities and differences there? Probably best to start on the on the differences. Fandom, because we're dedicated to the pursuit of these imagined worlds, you know, we, we kind of lose some of the baggage that you get on more traditional sort of social platforms where, you know, there's a fair amount of toxicity that can get generated, uh, where people are kind of out for their own self-interest. You know, you see a lot of this, you know, idea that there's big influencers sort of trying to nudge their way to the top. You know, fandom communities are really about celebrating, you know, what's going on with Game of Thrones. You know, what are the icons that are involved in that story? And what is the story arc? And, you know, what is the dynamic? How do dragons play the role? And and they want to debate the sort of the conditions and canon. The content creators for a platform who are awesome you know, they really are the experts in these spaces. And so they come together as a community and we do, we have a whole team dedicated just to support these communities. We want to make sure the tools work. We want to make sure the platform's stable. We make sure that they have the best tools in the hand to do the work they want to do. And so I think that's what's a little bit distinct and different from a sort of a traditional user-generated content platform where it's really about celebrating the IP and creating the tools to do it. Um, we run advertising on the platform to fund that. You know, we're not yeah. apologetic about it. We do our best with data to try to make sure it's as relevant as possible and try to get as right as we can. But that at the core, the, the fact that we have creators creating content and celebration of these IPs is what's really distinct and kind of unique for fandom. We're similar, I guess, in the sense that we provide a platform for voice for people, you know, which I think is really important that, you know, in this new media landscape, you know, everybody can be a creator and everybody can have a voice. And and I think just like every other platform, fandom provides the tools to do that. We d- it just so happens that our community is really kind of focused around galvanizing around the IP and around the story and less interested as much in personal aggrandizement or, you know, personal performance. So it's much more about like, what do I know about Star Trek? What do I know about, you know, Fortnite? Those are the things that really are celebrated on our platform. First decoder question, uh, how is fandom structured? Right? How, is, how does your org chart work? You know, we're very functionally oriented and, and we try to be as flat as we can. And so we have chief product officer, chief technology officer, chief marketing officer, chief business community officer. And then we have a chief revenue officer. And then we have a strong GNA group with a CFO and a CHRO and a general counsel. Um, so that's sort of broadly writ you know, how we're organized in terms of functional, and that's product and tech, community, business strategy, uh, marketing, sales and commerce, 
uh, and then the GNA structural support. That's how we're how we're organized. And that so that cuts across all the brands. So the TV Guide app is in the same product organization as the main wiki for Game of Thrones. It does. It does. And do you see yeah. overlap there? Does, does that does that work for you? Do you move as fast as you want to? We do. Uh, you know, I'm very sensitive. You know, to the idea of focus, and I think the test for us is we think about fan identity. How broad a reach is it between what do I want to watch and what is it I'm watching? <laughs> you know, or what game do I want to play and how do I play the game? Those are actually pretty connected issues for me, you know, and even to the point of like, and what game do I buy? Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why we've been pretty disciplined about our, you know, operating structure that we're like, there's not a lot of daylight between what game do I buy? What show should I watch? And how do I play that game? And what does this show mean? And can I buy that game? And so as a consequence, because the connective tissue is so tight, having a structure that's you know functionally oriented gives us actually a lot of leverage. So an interesting part of the puzzle here is you've made a bunch of acquisitions since you started. We've talked about TV Guide, Metacritic, GameSpot, Giant Bomb. You also made big cuts at those, right? You acquired these properties. They had staffs, they had identities. Maybe they were in service to your mission or maybe orthogonal to it, but you bought them and sort of immediately cut a bunch of editorial employees. Was that in service of integration? Were you trying to say, okay, these are just brands. They're the face of an operation that helps you figure out what to watch and then watch it. Or actually this editorial property doesn't make any sense at all. You know, as we, if you talk about, you know, restructuring and you acquire businesses, I mean, yeah. there's always going to be overlap. I mean, there's just going to be the some redundancy that you just have to kind of work through, and that's what a restructuring. And then there's some decisions that are that are business driven around how do you set up ourselves up for success with the right cost and revenue basis. I'm an operator that believes that we really want to be oriented around profitable growth and being able to, you know, at least see down the road far enough to decide, you know, which way to turn the wheel. And so as a consequence, when you acquire a business, especially one that from a business standpoint was struggling, in order to give me enough and give us as operators enough perspective to see down the road, you've got to pump the brakes and be able to see down the road far enough to know, okay, we need to go right with this business or left with this business. And that if we're able to do that, you know, get enough visibility, then we can push push behind investment. I mean, you look at fandom as a whole, and that's been our practice. We've added a lot of staff every year, but we and we've hired a lot of people, but we've done so because we've always been able to see down the road far enough that we know kind of which way to turn the wheel and where to make the investments. And and again, that's it's it's a tricky business, and I and I really understand the impacts, of course, on individuals. I take it incredibly seriously, but I'm also a, a CEO of a company that you know, is tasked with driving profitable growth. So that's the balance you have to strike. And that's the sort of the approach I took, you know, when we were, you know, looking at how do we build this set of brands to the next level of growth? Well, we just need to get some perspective and put them in the right orientation so we know which way to turn and which way to place investment. I understand that. I I think my question is, when you look at the acquisition of a giant bomb or a GameSpot, right, these are two of the largest sort of editorial outlets in, in games, and you say, okay, we've acquired them, I've looked at them, and now I've got to 
cut most of the editorial staff. What did you think you were buying? Like, how did it help you achieve sort of the larger mission for fandom? You know, I want to be clear, we didn't cut most of the editorial staffs. You know, we, we left a very significant editorial staff in place, and they're very good. You know, we also have editorial staff that was in place at Fandom before. We had incredible team and screen junkies and Fandom Productions. So, you know, it is a, always a difficult decision to, to sort of think about, okay, well, how do we get, you know, 2 plus 2, 2 equal 5 as we grow these companies? But it wasn't one where we sort of said, look, we're, we're going to leave these businesses uh, in a position where it's going to be difficult to invest and drive growth because we believe in the brands. Yeah. I, you know, I 100% believe in the team at GameSpot and the team at Metacritic and the folks at Giant Bomb, you know, and a couple of people who work in Game FAQs and, uh, and TV Guide. I mean, these are really good brands. The question is, you know, we've, again, we've got to be smart about how do we place them in the right position to drive that growth. That meant to prioritize the work before us. And I, we, we know the strategy for buying these businesses, I think was pretty straightforward. It was, as I kind of talked about that connective tissue of those connective dots, it's, you know, fans have questions about what to watch, where to watch it, what game to play, is it good? And we have this huge bulk of, of information to help people enjoy the movie better or play the game better. And so we just really wanted to sort of have this point of discovery and this point of engagement, which we didn't have. And I think those brands, the GameSpot, the Metacritic, TV Guide, Giant Bomb, are really representative of the best in class for getting people engaged at that point of discovery. Do you think that that is compatible with sort of how games journalists might have wanted to see themselves in the past? There's a function there that you're talking about, which is basically getting you to buy something, right? All the way down at the end of that road is, okay, you're going to you're going to spend some money and play a game or watch a movie. And part of your advertising partnerships are obviously with studios. Fundamentally, every entertainment property has this kind of inherent tension. I don't think it's unusual or new, but there's something there in games in particular where games journalism gets pushed and constrained. And you see it across the entire sort of industry of games journalism to being like, okay, this is kind of a marketing function for games. Is that something that you feel now? Or is that something that, hasn't really come up. I don't feel that. I, you know, as a, you know, we have, we have a lot of gamers uh, yeah. on our team here and I'm probably the, you know, the weakest among them <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> but I find, and again, what we find from our research too, is that, you know, people are so curious about games and the community around, you know, game launches and changes to games and, and that that role that the journalists provide in terms of giving people those those signposts, you know, where thing your favorite franchise, you know, yeah. uh, GTA, wh- wh- where's it going? You know, and I think that role of the, you know, essentially be able to put the, the markers out on the road to get people to say, here's where we need to go follow. I think that role is really important. And I think the team does a really good job. And I think there's there's relevancy there. And it's not just all transactional. And I think what we, we think about is, well, where are the places our voices need to be broadcast? And I think those platforms change, right? So we you know, have to do things on TikTok and have to be on Snap and have to do things better on YouTube. And, and we think about, well, where does that loop back on a wiki? You know, how do you show that content so people get a sense of what's there? And some of it is transactional. So we, you know, we have Fanatical. And you know, if you're reading a review on GameSpot, can you go buy that game? Sure. Do we want to make that as easy as possible? Absolutely. 
But I do think that the role of games journalism to provide, again, those signposts for these franchises, for people who are passionate about them, is incredibly important. And I, I don't see that going away because, again, there are these we know fans have these passion points and they want to consume kind of everything they can about the things they love. Last Dakota question. You've already kind of answered it. You said you think in scenarios. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? I am very much a calculated risk person, kind of in my personal life and, and as a leader <laughs> in a business. I'm pretty data-driven. Uh, I consume a lot of data because I, I find it to give me really important context. And so the, the way we make decisions here is let's focus on a couple things. Number one is, does it serve the mission and vision for the business? Number two, you know, what does the data tell us? Is it something that is strong and growing or is it, you know, weak and, and failing? You know, just so we can get some directionally correct information. Number three, can we see a comparable in the market around us? Because I, you know, I very much believe that there's many lessons to be learned by just looking around. What did Reddit do? What did Pinterest do? What's been happening over at IGN? So is there things that we can look at to give us directional guidance on what works and doesn't work? And then we, you know, again, pretty quickly frame up the opportunity. So is it a kind of a bread box or a t-shirt exercise? How big is it? And then we go from there and make the decision as quickly as we can. And we know we do so with imperfect information. I think Bezos's note about 70% good is good enough is exactly <laughs> right. So, so I try to be as data-driven as we can, again, and use those sort of scenarios and the and the idea of like, okay, can we look around us and see what's working to give us a little bit of, you know, directionally correct confidence and then make the qu- decision as quickly as we can with imperfect information. You've mentioned IP several times now and, you know, I'm an old IP lawyer, as our listeners know, I can't, this is bait for me. Uh, <laughs> the properties you're mentioning, right? Star Trek or Game of Thrones or Zelda or whatever it might be, you don't have a formal relationship with those, right? Those are other people's IP that you're building communities around. Is there a connection? Do you have a team that goes to Nintendo or one of the streamers or Netflix or whoever and says, hey, we're, we're building communities around your IP. We should work together in some way. We do. I mean, we have uh, hundreds of official wikis on our platform. We hear all the time about how producers and writers actually use our platform when they're creating content, because a lot of these major franchises, you know, you have long story arcs, <laughs> really complex yeah. narratives. And they're like, we, wait, what, what happened in that episode? Or when was that? Okay, that was 20 years ago. Like, wait a minute, we don't want to, we want to get this right so we can connect the dots correctly. So we do, we have these official relationships because I think we provide a real service because, you know, the, the communities are so dedicated to this IP. They're really, in a lot of ways, the sort of source of truth. And, you know, as you think about the evolution of these, uh, of IP holders, I mean, you know, people are going to transition. You know, somebody who's writing for Star Trek 20 years ago is different from somebody who's writing for Star Trek today. And to have one sort of place where the, the, it's a source of record, I think is incredibly valuable. And, and we, you know, work very closely with the IP holders around it. And, and we're a good source of information. And we do surveys and polls to kind of help everybody get perspective. So we, we actually think of ourselves as this kind of key partner to these folks, I mean, we're not we're not creating movies, uh, we're not making video games, so we're you know in the business of just sort of celebrating the content that they create. There's a real tension embedded in that. I think that's fascinating to push on, right? The official community for a given property has some sort of reputation associated generally on the internet, and then an unofficial community has a different sort of reputation. Do you see a difference 
in, I don't know, usage, engagement, and loyalty between your official communities that you're partnered with studios on, perhaps, and your unofficial communities? You know, I, I don't see a lot of it. I mean, it, it's very hard to kind of paint this with, with sort of one brush because yeah. those communities are all different and there's different degrees. I mean, you can think about the Harry Potter communities and Pottermore. And, you know, that's a very large community of people that actually has got a lot of official uh, tailwind behind it. We still have those communities on the platform and they're very engaged. And, you know, one of the things that I find is because there's sometimes uh, a change in objective that a company may have uh, who may own the IP, I mean, they may have a change of heart about what to release or a change in creative vision or whatever it may be, or the, uh, you know, delay in the game. And kind of the distinction I see is that because we're community driven, it's really just about what fans want to talk about yeah. and look at and play. And so there's no agenda other than to celebrate your nerddom, <laughs> you know? So, so actually, you know, 85% of the traffic to our platforms is on IP that's already released. And this is all just people going back to look at the original series or TNG on the Star Trek side or to go back to World of Warcraft Classic and they're trying to level up because they're rediscovering the game or, you know, whatever it may be that they're in an anime series that uh, is just replaying on Crunchyroll. So there's, there's all this, you know, consumption of content and entertainment that happens all around the world that's not necessarily tied to the sharp end of the spear of a release date. And so I think that's a really key distinction that, and we try to work with our partners in this and explain like, you know, you've got legacy and heritage behind a lot of these franchises. And the great thing about fandom as a category and as a business is that we actually dedicate ourselves to supporting these franchises over the kind of duration of their existence. So we're, we're about the last 50 years, you know, we're, we're not necessarily just about what may be launching in six months. So that's a really key distinction. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a minute to talk about what I think of as the Harry Potter problem. What does a fan-driven platform do when the fan's relationship with a creator changes? Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story... Innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from HIMSS. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. 
That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with Perkins Miller, CEO of Fandom, to talk about content moderation. So you opened the door to this question, I think, by bringing up Pottermore. That's a really complicated fandom, right? There's a studio. There's a J.K. Rowling. There's a bunch of fans whose relationship with a J.K. Rowling and that studio have dramatically changed over time as some of her views have come out. Uh, you sit in the middle of it, right? So if that community is mad at J.K. Rowling... What what is fandom's approach to that? If they want to go somewhere else, like you want to keep those users, but her relationship with them might be driving them away. How do you manage that? We have a a couple things that, that you maybe can tease out of that. So one, just to remember, we're communities in celebration of these virtual worlds. So, and we think that the approach to them is really about let's talk about Harry Potter. You know, let's let's talk about you know. Hogwarts, and let's talk about like what the magic is that's around that franchise. You know, there's of course going to be discussion along the way if things get politicized or there's different agendas. You know, we're really again focused on the imagined world that people want to celebrate because that's the IP that is meaningful. You know, we also, though, on the other hand, as it relates to you know inclusion and diversity, we we have a very strong policy of inclusion. And, you know, if there's toxic behavior on the platform, it, you know, we, we, don't, we don't allow for that. And the admins on our platform are incredibly supportive of that because it's really important that we allow people's voices to be heard, you know, across the world. And again, that's a, it, it's an imperfect task, as yeah. I remind everybody every day, like, this is not something where there's a finish line and, and there's <laughs> going to be nuance and there's going to be uh, debate to occur. But really, if we sort of hold two things true for ourselves, which is we're dedicated to these imagined worlds and all they mean to people and they're, you know, t- for the imagination. And we just make sure that the platform and the people who are on it to celebrate it, you know, behave as best they can and, and are inclusive of one another. That's that's the role we play. And we kind of let the other you know, the business side that may be churning around a given IP or some other political questions that churn around an IP, we kind of leave those to the side and just stay focused on that on that community in the imagined world. Well, there, there is a tension there, though. So, uh, you know, Harry Potter, I think just it's all in there. It's, it's a huge franchise. It's a massive business for Universal. J.K. Rowling is a famous person, is a huge community. You have a, a policy of inclusion. You know, my thesis about every platform is that the product is fundamentally content moderation. That's the thing you're making that makes everybody participate. Are you at the point where you're saying, look, Harry Potter fans on the official Harry Potter forum, we are not going to talk about JK Rowling's views towards trans people. We're just going to stay focused on the imagined world. Is that the the content moderation decision that enables the business? Because that really is the heart of all this, right? You've got to make that kind of decision at scale and get more of them right than wrong. Sure. And and I think if there were you know, anti-trans commentary and, you know, again, this idea of these ad hominem remarks that yeah. are directed at the individuals, of course, we, we, we don't stand for that. And as a, I, I consider myself as best I can an ally of the LGBTQ plus community, especially as the father of a trans child, 
you know, it's very, you know, personally meaningful to me to make sure that I'm modeling the best behavior I can for myself personally, as well as, you know, for our company, you know, but again, it's not necessarily about my point of view. It's all about what is the right focus for the company. And the right focus of the company is around these, again, the communities want to celebrate these imagined worlds, you know, and making sure that as long as you're not going into that ad hominem, so you're not attacking individuals, if you're really talking about, here's how to celebrate my love of Harry Potter, that's the lane that we want to make sure we stay, you know, clearly focused and drive straight down the middle of. You know, on the one hand, you can make it really complicated and, and yeah. there's always going to be nuance and there's going to be bumps in the road and you're not going to head it right all the time. Like I said, it's there's no finish line to this and there's no perfection. It's all about setting the right intention. You know, I think generally speaking, we do get it right, but you're 100% correct, which is it's not easy. And it's one of those things, again, if you stay really focused, though, on the mission of like we're about fan identity or about imagined worlds, that sort of keeps us in that lane pretty cleanly. Yeah, I mean, I think content moderation questions for platform CEOs are sort of infinitely complex, but I, I wanted to just ask that set of questions because it gives you a sense of what fandom is, right? Making a, a user content platform this commercial carries with it a, a different set of challenges than I think the the more wide open platforms you might otherwise compare it to, the Reddits and Instagrams of the world. Here you have a focus, you have partnerships, and I, I think the the shape of that is meaningfully different. And I wanted to make sure we got a hold of that because my next question is, okay, how does that make money? Is it just display advertising? Is it integrations with the brands? Where does the, the revenue come from? Yeah, the revenue comes in in you know, two, two big buckets. I mean, one, we do sell games. So we're a reseller of games and Fanatical, which is a smaller part of our business, but it's growing really meaningfully because we have a great team of folks that creates great bundles and packages of games for people to buy and play, which is awesome. And then we have advertising. We also have a small subscription business on Giant Bomb. So we have some of the greatest voices in video gaming that uh, people subscribe to on Giant Bomb. It's, it's also awesome. And, and then we have advertising. And the advertising, you know, what you're always trying to do is get the right balance between engagement. So we want to make sure people come to the platform and get satisfied with the answers they get. And also the creators can come create the content they want. On the other hand, it does cost us money to support and develop and try to build these experiences, which we think are really meaningful and give people this discovery. So the advertisers come in and we run brand campaigns. We do live events. We do the largest party at San Diego Comic-Con, for example, where we mm -hmm. had a you know, band, Korean band play and it's a huge event. We do the same thing across other Comic-Cons around the world. And uh, so we have a really good sort of events activation team. And then we do work across our social platforms to make sure people's voices get out there. And, and then we do things that, that essentially cross over to different platforms. So if you're thinking about a movie release or a game release, you know, that's going to be, you know, better architected around what can we learn from Metacritic and driving into the wiki or what can we learn from GameSpot and how do we marry that up in a way that maintains our editorial independence, but then gives those brands a way to connect to the fans. So, so it's a, it's a mix of, of those things, the mix of sort of display and brand advertising, events and social activation that we kind of bundle together in a way we try our best to be elegant by. And it sounds like your big clients there are game studios, entertainment companies. We do about 50-50. So we have a split between the what we consider our endemic partners. So that's the 
game studios and the movie studios and the TV streaming companies. And then we, the non-endemic, you know, so everybody from like a, an FDA to Comcast, you know, those are platforms and businesses that are trying to reach audiences. And we happen to be, you know, very significant, you know, collection of young folks who are interested in gaming and movies and TV. And so we'll work with them to help them reach those folks. The advertising market right now is really weird. You know, full disclosure, uh, The Verge is an advertising supported business. I'm confident that Decoder listeners will hear an ad soon in this episode. It's a tough market right now, right? Meta and Google kind of dominate online advertising. The ad agencies seem to be doing well, but that isn't trickling down. I don't know what's going to happen with Twitter's advertising business. Instagram Reels seems to be making more money than TikTok, which is not what you'd expect from their cultural relevance. Where do you fit into that ad market? Are you competing for dollars against the Metas and Googles, or do you have a different set of competitors there? I mean, it's hard to lump ourselves into a meta or a Google conversation, just the scale. Well, is well so- it's just like, if you look at the pie chart, it's like, that's where the share would come from. That's right. I, I think, you know, what we do differently, if you were here, you'd probably look at the business and see the same thing as I did, which is, you know, we've got a lot of signals as folks come in. If you've got 350 million people every month coming in and looking at entertainment content, you've got some really interesting insights in terms of what people want to watch, what games they want to play. And what we've built is this platform called Fan DNA. And what it does is basically says like, okay, hey, look, we're just, we're not taking any personal identifiable information. So, but we're able to see patterns of behavior. And what we've been able to build through Fan DNA is a set of insights, which we work with these partners to help them just make a better match between the ad message they have and the customers they're trying to reach. And I think we do a really good job with that. And because we also kind of know what's relevant to fans, because we're at Comic-Con and I put on my Star Trek, you know, cosplay, you know, we, we kind of know the <laughs> Wait, language. Wait, are there actually photos of you in Star Trek cosplay? There's actually photos of me in my Star Trek. My, you know, I was actually, Rochelle made me get a different outfit. So I dressed <laughs> as Commander Pike this time and not as Captain Kirk, you know, which was my preferred cosplay for the Star Trek celebrations. At any rate, the short of this is because we're fans, we know what fans like and love, and we have this, this these insights. That's where we're distinguishing ourselves is that, you know, you can go try to buy just basic demographics kind of anywhere. You can buy reach anywhere, but it's really hard to do reach and targeting to the degree we can do, especially if you're, again, if you're in the market of reaching fans, like there's really no better platform to do it. And so that's where we've been winning share. There's a lot of very nerdy people on the Verge staff, as you might imagine. We told these folks, hey, the CEO of Fandom is coming on the show. What do you want to know? By and large, the main question we got was, these pages are totally loaded with display ads. Like, the user experience of these pages is not what I like. Can they tone it down? That has to be feedback that comes to you, right? This is the money. We're going to – we have – video ads on the pages. We have huge amounts of display advertising. That's obviously the revenue. Is there a balance there that you think you have to strike? Do you think you have the right balance now? You know, you're asking the age old question, you know, which is, uh, you know, how much advertising is the right amount of advertising? (laughs) And, you know, I think, you know, we're doing our best to make it as elegant as we can. and, And yet we need to drive the economics. I would like there to be better matches overall, you know, because people, when they see an ad they like, don't complain about it. Um, when they see ads that aren't relevant to them, that's when it tends to set them off. But, you know, this is irrelevant and therefore unnecessary. 
So, you know, we're working on this idea that, hey, we've got these insights. Can we make things more relevant for folks than it is today? And I think that's a, again, it's one of those things that doesn't really have a finish line. It's just got to do a better job. And I think the other part of it is, you know, we're, we're consumed 60% on mobile, right? So, and that's just a smaller amount of surface area. And yet we have a massively dense amount of content that people want to navigate through. And I'm very sensitive to it. I spent all my time kind of evaluating and figuring it out with our product and tech teams. So we, we do think there's a path to make that an even more elegant experience, but it's harder just because the you know, surface area is just more difficult to work with. So I, I'm never going to claim that we have it right. Uh, I can tell you we work on it a lot and actually we study the data all the time because you know, we don't want people to have a bad experience. And, and we do need to throw ads, though. So it's that it's again, it's a it's a it's a bit of a contradiction that we have to manage through. You look at what happened to Meta and Google when Apple rolled out app tracking transparency. You know, their revenues fell down because their ability to target changed. Meta appears to have figured it out in their latest earnings. Did that impact you the same way? We run a huge advertising business at scale on mobile phones. You have apps, you have websites. Did you feel that the same way? Were you able to say, okay, Meta's got problems. We're right next to the IP that people care about. Shift your spend to us. We're much more an M-Web, mobile web, and D-Web, desktop web platform. We have a native app, and it's good. But we're much more focused on the M-Web and D-Web experiences because we have such a complex platform. You know, we have 45 million pages of content. We're really trying to get people to the places they want to be in order to get the experience they want and the answers that they're seeking. And so we haven't been able to find a way elegantly to do that in the native mobile experience yet. So we weren't impacted as much by that change that occurred that affect more native mobile apps because we're so D-Web and M-Web oriented, um, which is fine. I do think that there's definitely opportunity. Um, I mean, for example, our, our TV Guide app is a great app and it's actually doing really well. You know, we find that's a great platform, again, to solve a singular utility. Yeah. So I think our approach, and again, I'm getting a little bit to the side of your question, which is we weren't as impacted by the you know, yeah. bigger changes that Apple will deploy simply because our app strategy is not as material on the core fan wikis, but where we'd be very specific on utility because we're also really narrow casting. We're just looking at like what to watch. We also were okay and have been able to weather that storm pretty well. Yeah, I'm asking these questions because I, I just think the shape of the internet is about to go through a little bit of a reset and figuring out where where you think the money might come from, where it might head out to, that seems very important for all of the platform companies to sort out right now, right? And the notion that we can just produce millions and millions of pages of user-generated content and put uh, programmatic or cheap advertising on it, it just feels like maybe that world is over especially as some of the distribution that we're used to on the internet changes. And in particular, what I mean is, I don't know what's going to happen to Twitter, and I really don't know what's going to happen to search. It just feels like the the change that's underlying the internet right now. And so I'm asking kind of these very specific questions, but I'm wondering if you feel that bigger change as well. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, maybe the underlying question is like, how does Gen AI and these large language models and the sort of indexing of the internet you know, change over time. And, you know, I think our thesis, and, and I'm a, uh, as you can tell, kind of nerdy. I, I also do a lot of thinking in scenario structures. Mm -hmm. So I try to say, okay, faced with an uncertain future, 
how do we narrow that uncertainty? And the way we, we, I tend to approach it is to say, well, what, what kind of outcomes could we see happening? You could see an outcome where you know, search is decimated by Gen AI. You could see an outcome where it's really lumpy and it's not clear that people know exactly how Gen AI will impact discovery. And then you could sort of say, well, there's, there's a path where you say, well, verticalization will be more important than ever because domain expertise and understanding will always have its place. And so in those kind of three scenarios, I tend to think that the third one, this idea that deep verticalization and communities will be more important than ever because there's just so much information all the time. It's all about context and relevancy. And it's what we actually specialize in. We'll tell you what matters because we have 45 million pages of content around these imagined <laughs> worlds. And, and we've got you know tens of thousands of community members who are constantly kind of weighing in about nuance and talking about how things connect to one another and, and laying that out. And I, you know, again, there may be a moment in the future where these language models and the way Gen AI works will be able to solve for the questions you have in a curious way and with the right context and relevancy. But right now, and I think for the foreseeable kind of immediate future, I think these, you know, the sense of vertical, deep communities being really important to people who are trying to, you know, get some esoteric information, I think is really, really valuable. I think, you know, generic stuff like what's the temperature in Phoenix today? I mean, Sure, that's that's a very broad general piece of information. That I don't think requires <laughs> Google, Google killed my Phoenix weather business. I'm very <laughs> yeah. upset about it. I warned you, we were going to have an ad break. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Perkins Miller, CEO of Fandom, and it's time to talk about AI. 
I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen as AI takes over the web. And it seems like that's happening in a number of fronts for you. There's the changes coming to search. I'm looking at some older interviews you've done. You said a huge amount of your traffic comes from organic search. If Bing takes over for Google and Bing chat starts answering all the questions about Glee or whatever other fandom, is that an outcome you're prepared for? Or you think, okay, people are going to come to us directly because we're where the communities are. I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of inside these services, you know, to kind of evaluate and test. And we do consider one outcome, which is, you know, Gen AI disrupts all discovery. And the sort of chat partners able to quickly, you know, interpret your intention and get you exactly the right answer. This is this idea of the perfect storm scenario, that the AI evolves to the point where of the 350 million folks we have every month, every query that that person has is exactly uh, interpreted correctly by the AI to get that person the exact answer they were seeking. I tend to score that probability fairly low right now, you know, in terms of any sort of immediate action. I tend to then think about, well, what are the other likely outcomes? You know, have people built up a, a a set of behaviors around discovery where they're putting random keywords into a search engine and it's kind of seeing what shows up because they've got like three things they're sort of wanting to put together. And they Google's done a really good job of saying, oh, you give me three things, I'm going to take the indexing capabilities I have and give you a series of results that I think may be in the landing zone of what you're looking for. I feel like that's a pretty good way for people to process, which is like, I don't know exactly what I'm asking. I kind of have like a few things I want to sort of bang them into a box and see what shows up. And if I throw them all in there, you know, and I put in, you know, Kirk and Enterprise and Worf, (laughs) you know, like that's when I'm like, when did he show up on the Enterprise? Yeah, I'm going to get like a couple, I'm going to get fandom. Like, oh, there's the, you know, memory alpha platform on fandom, which is our Star Trek platform. And I'll dive into the rabbit hole. And sure enough, I'm going to find out when Worf showed up on the Enterprise. That, that feels to me like a, a scenario that's likely pretty durable, just the way I see behavior working today. It doesn't mean I don't think that perfect storm will happen where there's an AI but, but that let's again- let's say there's even, to go with Bezos, 70% of the perfect storm. I Google, how do I beat some shrine in Zelda Tears of the Kingdom? Google has scraped enough of fandom and enough of IGN, enough of whatever, to deliver the answer to that question in the search generative experience. And maybe they can't for all the other stuff, right? That You're figuring out, you're asking your question about Star Trek, and maybe you do land on fandom for that one. But there's a huge chunk that Google could take today because the answer is fixed, right? There's a way to beat the shrine, and people have typed it into text boxes on the internet, and Google can read it, and they can spit it right back out of you. How do you account for that scenario? I think that scenario, again, if there's a query that is precise, that you really know there's one answer to. Yeah, I think that the, there's absolutely the case where Gen AI and that result will work. I think you've But you've so like a huge Google. part of games publishing right now is Zelda guides. Like Zelda guides targeted yep. to search is some massive amount of games publishing right now. Like yep. every game is published right now, including the ones here at Vox Media Polygon, right? Totally devoted to Zelda guides. Eventually, Google's just going to be able to read all of that, right? Because part of the deal with Google right now is that we allow them to index our sites such that we might get the search traffic. And that relationship might change as they roll out more and more of their AI experience. 
that's not the perfect storm. That's just a linear progression from here to there with Google. How are you accounting for that? Have you gone to Google and said, look, you need to start paying us for this training data? Have you said, look, we're going to block you from robots.txt or whatever brute force mechanism there is? There's some big trade-offs in there, and they're not all the perfect storm. Trust me, I, I have a model that calibrates for some loss of <laughs> yeah. traffic. That's, a, that's because the tooling, you know, that power barred gets to the point where, you know, it's effectively, and again, you, you're probably on the prototype as I'm on the prototype to sort of see the Gen AI results. And I'm, you know, today, you know, the, I'm, I'm still going through to see the series of links because the answer is, you know, typically is in, incomplete or not quite Correct. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's absolutely a future, you know, where and I don't know what the time horizon is, where, you know, a very nuanced AI who can get intentionality correct and can consistently give you the answers to the questions you're seeking results in a very serious challenge for anybody who has content anywhere. What we're focused on right now is what are the communities doing together, you know, in support of these IPs they love? And if we stay dedicated to that, I think that that remains incredibly powerful because I think there's always going to be, you know, I think you're going to slice off some of those transactional queries mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yeah. Because if you have the communities of interest who are galvanized together around the IP, that's going to be durable regardless. So let me ask you uh, uh, the same question I actually asked Meredith copet Levian from the New York Times. The Times obviously has the same sort of relationship with Google as every other publisher. And I said, what are you going to do if there's Google zero, right? In the perfect storm, if Google goes to zero, what does your business look like? And you can go listen to that one. I encourage listeners to go listen to it. What I will tell you is there's the answer she gave me. And then a couple weeks later, the New York Times signed a huge distribution agreement with Google to use their tools because obviously they are thinking about this, right? So I'll ask you the same question and tell me if you're on the cusp of signing a huge deal with Google. Um, what happens to fandom if Google goes to zero, if, if Google zero occurs? I think if Google is, if you're saying that Google zero means like every search query is yeah, Google eats all the traffic. It's ecosystem, right? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple things that I think are interesting to consider. You know, one is, is how does new content get created? And I think that right now there's, you know, a lot of communities creating content everywhere. And if the if you lose publishing, this is publishing broadly. If you lose publishing broadly because there's no economic basis for people to go to a website and watch a read content and see an ad or subscribe to a platform, you know, it's kind of recursive. It's gonna be a problem for the AI. What will it be sourcing? And you probably left with social media as your primary source of content, which as we know tends to unfortunately be polarized. The content at the extremes tends to be more and more prominent. And so you can possibly assume that, in fact, the AIs will start to train on more polarized information that's probably incorrect. And it's also not training on new data because those sources have, you know, essentially been been, cut out of the market. So I tend to think that users, though, especially in our world, want authentic communities to talk about the content they love. And they want to create that content themselves. And so, you know, we're focused on this idea of, you know, my fandoms and creating the way for you to kind of come and be a part of our community. We have several million people registered with fandom today, and we think that's going to continue to grow. And 
And in fact, it may be the case that if AIs tend to get you know, more isolated and tend to train on more polarized information that may be incorrect, there's probably going to be an opportunity for platforms that are, again, deeply vertically focused yeah. around community that will essentially deflect that trend. We've covered the changes at Reddit very closely, that both the proposed changes, the user outcry, the protests, a lot of that is driven by Reddit as a company saying, we need to make more money on this. We are seeing the open AIs and the Googles of the world come to Reddit, train on all of our user-generated content, and then make money selling AI elsewhere. We want to get paid for that. Squint and fandom has the exact same problem. Have you gone to Google and OpenAI and Microsoft and Anthropic, whoever else, and said, look, if you want to scrape our site, you have to pay us? You know, we have not done that. You know, we are, you know, very focused on the community creating the content and the community members themselves and, and creating a better platform. It's really the thing we can control. We want to make sure that people have access to it and make sure our, our admins and creators are having the best tools possible. And again, we're striking that balance of a great ad experience and great engagement. And that's what we're really focused on right now. And we, we feel that by having that focus on the community and focusing on the content, it's probably the lane for us to play in. You know, we're, we're very much, I think, it, unlike a Reddit has a lot of APIs that go out to a lot of different platforms. Mm-hmm. I can see, I can understand that strategy, but for us, it's not, this, it's not, a, it's not a right analogy. Well, Reddit is the the face of a problem with Google, right? You, people are Googling questions and putting the word Reddit at the end because the best answers are on Reddit. And obviously, Google is scraping that. But you see that with fandoms as well. You see that with wikis in particular. That that's where the right answers are. That's where the community is. Is there a point where you would go to one of the AI providers and say, look, we know you're reading our site. We definitely want you to pay us. Yeah, I don't know what that business model is, though, for them. I mean, I think that, you know, it's not clear to me right now that that I understand the payment that Google would make, you know, for accessing information that, frankly, on our side is public. Yeah. It's not clear to me. I think that, you know, a core or Reddit, that it's really those discussions and the sort of kernels of insight the individuals provide in those discussions that people are seeking and the, you know, Redditors who are in those groups curating that, they just have a different model in the sense that they're, you know, they're talking about everything from politics yeah. to news and, and how to fix a car. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, we're very much in this imagined world. And so it's not necessarily but, quite the, the analogy that I'm as concerned about. No, this is what I mean. This is all deeply uncharted territory, right? I don't think anybody knows quite these answers. But it's true that particularly in fan communities, fan fiction communities, creative communities, the use of AI and having AI trained on fan work is deeply controversial, right? And certainly in our reporting, we've seen controversies in the fan fiction community. We've seen controversies in the creative community. Giving the data to the AI is as controversial as it gets. Using the AI is even more controversial. I want to come to that in a minute. Have you felt any call from your communities? Hey, we'd like you to protect our work from the Google AI machine, or we'd like you to protect our work from the open AI machine. Because I think that's the other pressure. There's the economic pressure, which was going to play out you know, as executives like yourself make different kinds of decisions across the platforms they run. There's also 
sort of the user pressure saying, I would like to contribute to my community. I would not like to contribute to Google's bottom line. Our communities, and I can't speak for everyone, we tend yeah. to query them and talk to them a bunch. And you know, remember, you know, our strength as a community is in celebrating these imagined worlds. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of concern about how Gen AI and these models are used to... Well, let me give you the example much more specifically. If I go to ChatGPT today and say, write me a story about Kirk and Worf on the Enterprise, and it just does it. And part of that story is because it has gone and read the fandom wiki and has all of that information in it. Is there a value exchange there that feels fair to you as the CEO of the company? And then I think more importantly to the members of that community. That, that was exactly the kind of creator answer I was, was getting to, which is that, you know, I think that there's a question about what is a derivative work? Mm -hmm. And, you know, is AI a tool for creators to do more work or is it a tool that that disrupts the creator's vision for what it is? I think we don't know that right now. You know, our view is that you know we want to make sure that we are dedicated to those creators yeah. who are building these imagined worlds. And it may be that those creators, you know, in the gaming world, you can give voice to NPCs. And in giving voice to NPCs, is that going to create a more rich game environment? Would you want Gen AI to assign personality and voice to the NPCs and allow you to kind of play your game in a much more rich environment? And it's much more dynamic. There's an example where that's where, you know, there's the, the positive benefit of, of being able to apply large language models and learnings and training data to something that's great. And I think we all would potentially celebrate that. So I think there's just as the knife cuts one way, it can also cut the other. And, and I think right now the, the view is let's let's use the tools as best we can, yeah. you know, in order to create great content and celebrate it without necessarily working from the position of fear, which is is not yet manifest. I want to take credit for not immediately taking the bait at the words derivative works. I'm just very proud of myself. <laughs> Move right on. But everyone should know that I. You said it, and I avoided it. There's another side of this. You said the knife cuts both ways. Like you, I've been trying all the tools. And my view of the generative AI tools right now, especially when it comes to text, is that this is an absolute canon of like C-plus content, right? It's not great. It's not wonderful. I, I think I can do a better job at writing than ChatGPT can do today. But it never gets tired. It never stops. It can write about anything you want for as much as you want. It is a canon of C plus content. And a lot of times what we're finding is any text box on the internet, people will find it and they will point that canon at that text box. You run a platform of user generated content. It has to be that AI generated content is coming onto your platform, perhaps at scale. Has this become a problem for you yet? Is this something that you're actively moderating against or are you letting the community decide what to do? Right now, you know, we're, since we're community-driven and anyone can create a blog, a wiki on our platform, you know, we, we want that to continue to have the same flexibility it always has had. And, you know, but if we see, you know, just like we would look at, you know, spam bots back in the day, which may have just been as long ago as last week, you know, if we see a lot of content that's being created that you know, is clearly artificial or clearly missing the mark, most importantly, that it's wrong, yeah, <laughs> you know the community absolutely flags it. It's it's something that doesn't get a lot of traction, and that's one of the things about being so dedicated to these imagined worlds. 
we've seen other platforms, the, the moderators there, Reddit, Stack Overflow, you just go down the line. They said, look, the flood of spam, effectively AI-driven spam, is so much that we can't keep up with it, right? The, the moderation workload here has gone up substantially because of the amount of AI content that's coming into the system. Some of the platforms have just banned it, right? They've said, particularly coding platforms, we can't keep up with this volume. We can't trust it. We don't think it's good. Don't do it yet. We'll figure out a path. Have you written a, a, like a site-wide policy yet? Have you felt that pressure from the moderation side? We, we take the approach that, you know, you kind of know it when you see it. But, it, you know, at the same time, you probably have read this as much as I have. Even the folks with like actually AI moderation tools can't figure out what's AI yeah. driven or not. <laughs> so, you know, I think if someone says that they've got an infallible AI detection tool, I think they're making that up because I don't think it exists because I think that it's very possible to use AI and and recognize the nuance that needs to be introduced and, and use it as a tool to create great content. And, you know, how do you designate between the tool that created great content and just helped accelerate it versus the tool that is spamming a platform with irrelevant information? As I said, we, we have a pretty good system for detecting the irrelevancy. But at the same time, I also think that someone who says they've got a perfect AI moderation tool is uh, <laughs> not quite seeing straight. Yeah, OpenAI released one and they pulled it because they said it wasn't effective. So I think that's the state of that. But you've got actual moderators on your platform. Have you heard from them? Are they complaining yet? We're not seeing that at volume. And it may just not be that we're, you know, because of the content that we're focused on, we're not seeing that as a, as a, as a mechanic. We, you know, creating a wiki is... Is somewhat, you know, takes some effort. You know, you have to really want to do it, which is, you know, I, I just want to make it as easy as possible. At the same time, it also means you have to really want to work at it. And, you know, how many people want to, you know, add to the Zelda wiki, you know, you have to want to do that. And so I think that's maybe one of the benefits of having the, the platform that we have. Zelda wiki actually brings up a really interesting point, which is these communities sometimes move. Uh, Zelda Wiki actually left last year uh, before Tears of the Kingdom came out. I think Minecraft community is thinking about moving on from fandom. How do you react to that to say, okay, this huge community is sort of unhappy with us. They're thinking about leaving our service and going somewhere else. Do you actively get involved in, okay, we should try to keep them? Is there a strategic planning or is it, hey, okay, like no harm, no foul, you can move on? I'm actively engaged. I take it very seriously. You know, I, I work very hard every day to try to make sure that we build a good platform that people can use that's stable and has great tools. And, you know, and I think we're, you know, some place that, that I think is really community focused. I think we've got the right values. So I, I really take it, you know, seriously if a, if a community says, look, we're going to go somewhere else. And at the same time, we also have, you know, seen lots of year over year editor growth. You know, we're actually seeing more people than ever creating content on the platform. So, you know, I think because these IPs have big, broad fan bases, the great news is there's lots of people who are interested in creating the content, which is great. But I'd also take it very seriously that we have a good experience for our editors to come to the platform and produce the content. So it's a it is a balance, but I do take it very seriously. Did you have any conversations with the, the Zelda Wiki folks to say, what would it take for you to stay? I didn't at the time. You know, I think there's a there's also a role to play as the CEO, which is that a lot of people think the platform is theirs to use. And largely, that's the way I'd like it to be felt. I'd like the folks at the Zelda Wiki have no idea who I am <laughs> because they're so happy with the tools they're using. They just don't care. It's like I don't really care about who runs Gmail. 
because Gmail works fine. And I just want to use it to do my, my, the thing I'm passionate about. So <laughs> honestly, we, you know, on, on that, this show, we actually, care a lot about who runs Gmail. I just want to be clear. That's, that's this show. <laughs> I appreciate that. But that's my, that's my orientation. So I, I tend to work with our teams really closely and, and we do a, a huge event called Community Connect every year yeah. um, where myself and Jimmy Wales go and we spend time, you know, going one-on-one with all, you know, some of our leading community members and admins. So I'm very devoted to the communities. At the same time, you know, there's some communities who, you know, see us as a platform and want to be just left to do what they want to do. And I also respect that enormously. And let me just do my job to make sure you have a great set of tools. Did you take any lessons from what's happened with Reddit? I think Reddit was in the same position, right? They were somewhat neutral. It was hard to even see what they were doing on a day-to-day. And suddenly they appeared and they became personalities and they tried to take control of their platform. And maybe that will work out in the end financially. But certainly in the moment, it has had a series of negative repercussions for them. What lessons did you take from all that? It's the same lesson I think that I've had since I've been here, which is, you know, we, we restarted Community Connect when I got here and, you know, I worked very close with Michael and Brandon, our team of community leaders, to sort of have a forum and listen and make sure we build great tools. <laughs> you know, like one of the things that is very clear to me is that if you don't make the platform serve the creator, the creator may go somewhere else. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, we have a, we have a roadmap of creator tools that goes through the next year. We do a community connect every year to coalesce and and bring our product and engineering and marketing and content teams all together in one place with, with our creator communities and listen to them and figure out what to build and when we can launch it. And then we publish our roadmap and say, this is where we're going. This is what we've heard. And we've actually, again, over the last year, kind of launched more tools than we ever have. And so I think that for me is where, like, we're never going to be perfect and, you know, there's always more we can do, but we tend to spend a lot of time on making sure that we have a good say-do ratio, as they say. We do what we say <laughs> uh, with our community. And I think we've got to, and if you do that pretty well, then hopefully on, on balance, you're able to retain more folks. Yeah. And that's a, as good a place as any to wrap it up. Tell us what's next for fandom. What kinds of things are you looking to roll out that you're excited about? We've got a lot of new launches coming up on the core platform over the course of the next sort of six to nine months, which is going to be in the form of making discovery easier on the platform, getting our search more optimized and actually working more closely to provide the quick view of content on Google. And, you know, we're really focused over the next sort of, you know, 18 to 36 months on this idea of, you know, having a better, deeper personal experience, you know, and and this idea of, you know, collecting things that you love around your identity at fandom. That may be in the form of going to our events or collecting goods or, you know, bringing your identity more directly into fandom so we can provide you more relevant content. So that's a little bit of a teaser for something we'll be talking about next year. But I do believe that because we are so close to fans that we can do much more than we do today to give them relevant context and help them celebrate their fandom better than ever. Amazing. Well, Perkins, you've given us so much time. I really appreciate it. You're going to have to come back next year and talk about some of these new product launches. Thanks. It's been great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Ask excellent questions. Thanks again to Perkins Miller of Fandom for taking the time to join Decoder today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm hosting the Code Conference September 26th and 27th. We have a great list of speakers, including Mary Barra from GM, 
Robert Kinsel, the CEO of Warner Music, and many more. Go to voxmedia.com code to see the full list and apply to attend. We would love to see you there. I'd also love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I read all the emails. You can also hit me up directly on Instagram threads. I'm at Reckless1280, and we have a TikTok. Check it out at DecoderPod. It's a lot of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.